you need to discover the power of intercession. No nation is closed to intercessory prayer. There's no power on earth that can stop intercession from turning a situation around. My prayer is, Lord, teach us how to pray, and especially how to intercede in these last days. Shalom, I'm Christine Darg. We're in the finest gospel hour as far as opportunities are concerned to win a great harvest of souls because we're coming to the conclusion of the season in history that the Bible refers to as the times of Gentile domination. God is preparing to return the keys of the kingdom back to Israel prior to the second coming of Jesus. The number of souls that can be won in the remaining days of the times of the Gentiles is, in a sense, up for grabs. Intercession must precede every harvest of souls into the kingdom of God. And in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy 2.1, the Apostle Paul outlined four duties of believers in the realm of praying. He said that we're to make supplications, prayers, and intercessions along with thanksgiving to God. Paul wrote, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men and for kings and all who are in authority. Why? He said, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. In this verse, we learn that prayer creates a firewall for a godly and honest life of peace. And in this verse, we have four kinds of prayers, including thanksgiving. So what's the difference between prayers, supplications, and intercessions? Prayers are, of course, general requests, but supplications and intercessions are more specific actions. By definition, a supplication is a humble appeal to somebody who has the power to grant a request. So a supplication to God would be a petition with a specific request. And supplications would be a list, as it were, of multiple requests. But to intercede, on the other hand, is prayer action to stand in proxy, as if it were for somebody, and to meet between two parties personally on the behalf of one or both. The difference has been explained like this. Supplication is like sending a letter on behalf of someone, but intercession is like going to meet personally on behalf of somebody to represent them. Well, as I often say, my favorite book outside of the Bible is called The Intercessor which is by Norman Grubb, and it's his biography of the Welshman Reese Howells. The book chronicles Howells' life and exploits in prayer as an intercessor before and during World War II. His intercession at the Bible College of Wales that he founded helped to protect Britain from Nazi invasion and prepared the way for the founding of the Jewish state. 
In the Bible, there are many examples of intercessors who interceded on behalf of their people, including Abraham, Daniel, Esther, Moses, and his brother Aaron. In Numbers chapter 16, God was greatly provoked by the people's sin, and both Moses and Aaron humbly fell on their faces before God to intercede for mercy. And when God sent a plague, Aaron made atonement by burning incense between the living and the dead. And so Aaron fulfilled the type of an intercessor. Numbers 16.48 says that when he stood between the dead and the living, the plague was stopped. So an intercessor is a person who doesn't just pray for his own needs, but he specifically and sometimes physically takes up the needs of an individual or sometimes an entire nation before the throne of God. An intercessor labors in prayer relentlessly until vital needs are answered and met by the Lord. In fact, the greatness of an intercessor is his or her selflessness. Both Moses and the Apostle Paul in their intercessions for Israel said that they were willing to be blotted out on behalf of their people. And as he was prepared to die, Jesus made intercession for Israel and the entire world from the cross. Even now, Jesus continues as our full-time advocate and chief intercessor at the right hand of God where he's presently located. And the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us with groans that words can't express when we don't know how to pray. An intercessor who prays for others is concerned with the eternal purposes of God and the glory of God. And the Bible says that God seeks intercessors. Some of us have been in the Lord's School of Intercession for decades, and some are just beginning to learn to stand in the gap on behalf of others. Sadly, I've learned that some people enjoy making a public display in prayer meetings, but a genuine intercessor prays when nobody is watching or listening except God. To be a genuine intercessor, a person must have had a deep encounter, a deep experience with the Lord, and possess a genuine faith that God hears and answers prayers. A genuine intercessor knows the heart of God and therefore knows what's on God's heart to pray. A genuine intercessor will receive burdens from the Holy Spirit to pray specific prayers. A genuine intercessor also senses the urgency of the hour that the lost should be brought to a saving knowledge of the Savior, Jesus the Messiah. A genuine intercessor will make it impossible for God to declare what he said in Ezekiel 11, that he sought for a man to build up the wall and stand in the gap, but he found none. A genuine intercessor is willing to stand in the gap so that God will not carry out harsh judgments as he had intended. You see, God said in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 1, Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search the squares to see if you can find a man who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon the city. 
Well, there's precedent in the Bible, in the story of Abraham who interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah. God wouldn't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if he could find a righteous minority of 10 persons. This is what we learn. Like a lawyer before the throne of God, an intercessor like Moses can say based upon God's own promises, I'm standing in the gap interceding for God to pardon this city or people. That's why it's so vital to be established as a reliable intercessor before God. It takes a lot of practice, and I'm so encouraged that Billy Graham's son, Franklin Graham, has been holding prayer meetings in every state capital in the United States. His mission is to plead 2 Chronicles 7.14 in corporate prayer. That verse says, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and heal their land. I made a comment on Facebook saying how encouraged I was that Franklin Graham had decided to hold these strategic prayer meetings in every American state capital. And somebody immediately commented that I should read all of Second Chronicles chapter 7 because the result of continued disobedience is being evicted from the land. But, whoa, wait a minute. I replied that we cannot read roughshod over verse 14. Verse 14 of Second Chronicles chapter 7 is a definite, wonderful promise that God will heal our land if we fulfill the verse. And I believe God says what he means in this book. And he means what he says. All of his promises are yes and amen. In fact, if verse 14 is sincerely obeyed, God is honor-bound to keep his word and to heal the nation. After all, the verse doesn't say, if the politicians humble themselves and pray and seek the Lord's face and turn from their wicked ways. It doesn't say, if the police or the media humble themselves and pray and seek the Lord's face and turn from their wicked ways. No, it says, if my people... The believers humble themselves and pray and seek the Lord's face and turn from our wicked ways. That's us, the people of God. We're the ones who must humble ourselves and pray and seek the Lord's face and turn from our wicked ways. Then he promises he will hear from heaven and heal our land. Those are the conditions God lays down. And when we genuinely respond in the way God prescribes, he promises also to hear from heaven, to forgive our sin, and to heal our land. Full stop. I believe this. Hallelujah. Well, in the meantime, in the Middle East, I'm so glad that our God is not standing by idly. In response to our intercessory prayers, he's moving mightily and through the divine agencies of dreams and visions, as I've documented in one of my books called The Jesus Visions, Miracles Among Muslims. The book is partly autobiographical and relates how on more than one occasion Muslims and Arabs had already seen me in dreams before I went to preach in their localities. 
And so when they recognized me after I arrived, that made the sharing of the gospel a lot easier. Well, the same phenomenon is continuing. An American missionary named Daniel, his name was changed for security reasons, has been working with Syrian refugees living in tents. One afternoon, Daniel visited a family of eight. The family became very excited, and the interpreter explained that the night before, the whole family was sitting in their tent having tea when a man in white stood at the entrance. The man was glowing, and he said, My name is Jesus, and I'm sending someone tomorrow named Daniel to tell you more. Then he disappeared. So, when Daniel arrived the next day, the family were completely prepared and open, and the whole family gave their hearts to Jesus. The father, a devout Muslim, had known bloodshed and had been a member of the Free Syrian Army, but now they are leading other Muslims to the Lord. That missionary felt the presence of the Lord in a Muslim tent in the middle of the desert more than he'd ever sensed the presence of the Lord in a church. This is because he was fulfilling his God-appointed assignment. Believe it or not, corporate visions of Jesus are not uncommon in the Muslim world. And as I pointed out in my book, one of the amazing phenomena of the current outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the Middle East is that Muslims are collectively experiencing corporate dreams and visions of Jesus, like that entire family in a tent, and not just individuals. And so, in a Syrian refugee camp, Jesus had appeared simultaneously to eight family members. And in my book, I relate how the Lord appeared simultaneously to 19 Muslim schoolchildren at the same time in an open vision. And sometimes an entire village or a sect of Muslims have all experienced the same dream about salvation through Jesus. And this is because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit along with the power of intercession. We're believing God daily to move with signs and wonders along the Isaiah 19 highway among the confederacy of nations that God speaks about in that chapter, Egypt, Israel, and Assyria, that the Lord has promised to bless in the last days. In, in our ministry, we're helping to build the Lord's messianic kingdom through intercessory prayer, and we're also praying and evangelizing throughout the so-called 1040 window on the globe. That's the most unreached part of the world. The so-called 1040 window on the map extends 10 degrees to 40 degrees north of the equator and stretches from North Africa across to China. The 1040 window contains the world's largest population of non-Christians, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism. Currently, there are nearly 3 billion unreached persons in that window who have yet to hear that Jesus is the way to the Father. But believers are waking up. There's an urgency in intercession that we mustn't sleep on our watch. And I think it's instructive to point out that in warfare, 
The side that acts first often wins. The one thing we must not do is postpone intercession. And we can learn persistence from Jerusalem's intercessors. The Lord testifies about us in Isaiah 62, 6. He says, Upon your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night long. They'll never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Yes, God appoints guardians on these walls. And we keep at it day and night. The Lord doesn't want us to give him any rest until he makes Jerusalem his capital of praise, the worship capital of the world. Well, in the Old Testament, Daniel the prophet lived a life of prayer. He stationed himself three times a day faithfully at his window to pray towards Jerusalem. But there was a time when he stepped up his intercession to another level. He spent three intense weeks of fasting and prayer. And this intercession brought the archangel Michael into the atmosphere to fight against the prince of Persia when the time of the Jewish exile was completed. So a true intercessor prays day and night and prays without ceasing, and sometimes adds fasting to the equation. The watchman on the walls passage in Isaiah 62 describes the type of quality intercessor that we find in the pages of the New Testament in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Here we meet the elderly widow, Anna. She is the quintessential intercessor. Anna kept at it for about 60 years. Think about that. Sometimes we want a quick fix, but she prayed that long. And the Bible says she was a prophetess of the tribe of Asher. She was 84 years old. And she worshiped the Lord with fastings and prayer day and night in the Holy Temple. In fact, the record says that she never left the temple. Her intercession was closely connected with the Messiah's first coming. And Anna was present in the temple when Jesus' parents brought him to be dedicated. At that very moment, she came up to them and gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking for redemption. And no doubt, the prophetic anointing upon Anna's life affected the prophetic anointing upon the prophet Simeon, who was also in the temple. Some scholars say he was officiating when Jesus was dedicated. Simeon took the child into his arms and prophesied that Jesus was set for the fall and rising again of Israel. In that one sentence, Simeon spoke of both the first and second comings of Messiah. And if the Messiah's first coming was worthy of 60 years of intense fasting and prayer by Anna, how much more should we be praying and interceding for the Lord's second coming? that souls would be saved and Israel protected and prepared for the Lord's return. Well, if we're called to pray for a ministry, for a city like Jerusalem or for a nation like Israel, we must realize that it can be dangerous and even 
potentially fatal if we're slack on the job. Recently, when the most conservative judge of the United States Supreme Court, Antonin Scalia, died suddenly and unexpectedly in his sleep, my first thought was, where were the intercessors? Do we protect the lives of important leaders constantly in prayer? Are we fighting the good fight of faith on behalf of vital political and religious leaders? Do our leaders have enough prayer covering? The reason some pundits speculated that the Supreme Court justices' untimely death could have been possibly foul play is because he held strong Christian views. He held solid biblical opinions to the chagrin of liberals and progressives. When you study the intercessors in the Bible, you're struck by their boldness to approach the Lord on behalf of their people. Moses became so close to the Almighty that he could command the Lord with bold words. At one point, Moses said to God, Turn away from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil that you intend against thy people. That's bold. And God wants us to approach his throne of grace boldly through the merits of Jesus. He wants us to excel in intercession. He wants us to do exploits in prayer. And so he waits for us to come to him in intercession. And he invites us to come. The intercessor must therefore be very courageous and insistent when standing before God and work with him like a lawyer. You bring God's own word to reason with him. You can ask God if the Lord's sacrifice is big enough for him to forgive a person for whom you're interceding. And you know that God will agree that the sacrifice of Jesus covers the sinner's transgression. And we know God will answer. An intercessor is courageous and bold to step in the gap on behalf of others so that God won't destroy them. We also many times ask God to bless somebody, to heal them, and to deliver them. Take, for example, intercessors who intercede for this nation of Israel. When an intercessor understands that God has promised to guard, to bless, and to keep Israel, we can be very bold to claim all of God's end-time promises and ask Him to bring to pass the prophecies concerning Israel. This is because we know his heart concerning Israel and what the Lord wants to do. Therefore, we can pray his purposes to come to pass very boldly. And I think it's amazing that God gives us such an invitation in Psalm 2.8, one of my favorite verses. Ask of me, God says, and I shall give you the nations for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. And so I want to collect as much spiritual real estate as possible. Psalm 2.8 promises this. And Jesus says that heretofore you've asked nothing in my name, but ask now and you'll receive so that your joy will be full. Yes, when we receive answers to our prayers, our joy just can't be contained. It reminds me of the joy the women felt in the resurrection garden. 
They were in fearful awe of the power of God raising Jesus from the dead, yet they were also filled with unrestrained joy. And this kind of joy is one of the great benefits of being a believer and an, and an intercessor when we see our prayers answered. I went to pray the other day with a person who was very weak physically, and she was in tears, and they were tears of frustration. And so an intercessor has to learn to contend on behalf of others against the powers of darkness, not just praying for ourselves, but for others. We contend and we resist the powers of darkness many times on behalf of others because there are many believers who simply don't have the strength, the stamina, the courage, or the wisdom to know how to resist Satan by themselves. They need reinforcements, and unless they have reinforcements from healthy, strong intercessors, they can easily fall prey to the enemy. And unless a seasoned believer really contends for their needs, the enemy of their souls can do them great harm. Many times I found myself interceding on behalf of an unbeliever, a person who's destined for salvation, but they're not yet able to fend for themselves against the powers of darkness. And you see, it's impossible really for an unbeliever to engage in spiritual warfare. And so they need an intercessor. A more experienced believer must stand in the gap on their behalf. In the book of Job in the Old Testament, Satan complained to God that he couldn't hurt Job because God had put a hedge of protection around Job and around his house and around all that he owned. That's why intercessors will go into great details in prayer on behalf of somebody else in order to build a hedge of protection around a person's health, around his house, his spouse, uh, home, around their children, and so forth. The intercessor knows that what's not protected in prayer will be exposed to attack and can be potentially ambushed and destroyed. So it's important for anybody with a ministry that's winning souls and destroying the kingdom of darkness to have a full-time team of intercessors. These intercessors should pray in great detail for the health, strength, and wisdom of the minister, for finances for the ministry, for divine contacts, and for angelic protection when traveling. And uh, on this subject, we have many other videos at our website and also videos on healing and Bible prophecy. So I invite you to visit our website at exploits.tv where you can click online to receive our internet version of our free color magazine, Exploits. And while you're visiting our website or social media, please send me any questions and comments at Christine Darg. Reminding you that Daniel 11.32 says that people who know God will be strong and carry out exploits. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us so that his ways may be known on earth and his salvation among all nations. Until next time, contending for the faith and praying always for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Dark. Shalom.